Welcome. You are listening to the Park Avenue Synagogue Podcast, and this is Rabbi Elliot Cosgrove. While it's better to hear it live, this is the place to catch the latest sermon, conversation, and select program. If you like what you're hearing or want to learn more about our community, check out PASYN.org. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to get a notification for our next episode. Enjoy and see you in shul. Hello and welcome to this week's Park Avenue Synagogue podcast. It's wonderful to welcome you as a listener, new listener, or maybe you're a frequent listener. Maybe you listen at one time speed. Maybe you listen at one and a half speed and save some time. However you come to us, we're excited to welcome you to be part of an ongoing dialogue about issues of Jewish concern within the community, beyond the community, new books that are out, important thinkers to engage with. We are with such a speaker today. Um, We are going to be in dialogue with Rabbi Edward Feld about his newest publication called The Book of Revolutions, The Battle of Priests, Prophets, and Kings That Birthed the Torah. It's a fabulous book. We're going to dive in in just a moment to learn more about the book, but it is uh, my pleasure to introduce um, Rabbi Feld, who has published widely on Jewish theology, prayer, the Hebrew Bible, as well as on halachic, Jewish legal and ethical issues. Uh, he is the author of Joy, Despair and Hope, Reading the Psalms and the Spirit of Renewal, Faith After the Holocaust. If you know nothing else about Rabbi Feld, you should know that he is the senior editor of the Machser Lev Shalem, um, published by the Conservative Movement's Rabbinical Assembly, for which he was listed as one of the forward 50, 50 outstanding American Jews. He's also the senior editor of the Sidur Lev Shalem for Shabbat and festivals. These are the very Sidurim prayer books and Machsorim high holiday prayer books that we use at Park Avenue Synagogue. So know it or not, um, you know the work of Rabbi Edward Feld. Um, In his distinguished career, Rabbi Feld has served as rabbi in residence at the Jewish Theological Seminary of America and as advisor and mentor to rabbinical students um, and rabbi of the Society for the Advancement of Judaism and Hillel Director of Princeton University. Uh, It is wonderful. To welcome you, Rabbi Feld. Thank you, Elliot. It is, you know, I I, I read your prayer book every week. <laughs> um, and yet this book, the Book of Revolutions, which I want to congratulate you on, I really enjoyed diving so into much. it, is as different from a prayer book as, as night is today. So tell me a little bit perhaps about the, the origin of this book, how you went from being the editor of, of the conservative movement's prayer book to um, this new project that has, has been published, the Book of Revolutions. So as a way of explanation, I'll start actually at the end, the way I conclude uh, the book, um, which is that um, what I tried to show was that the Torah had many different um, moments when it was um, edited, when it was put together, and that um, that diversity in the Torah between the different um, 
should I say, authors or different editors. Uh, that di that diversity is the diversity which I also had uh, in in mind in the publication of the Leib Shalei, Machzor, and Sidur. One of the things I'm so very proud of in the in the Sidur is we have quotations from um, Menachem Mendel Schneerson, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, and Amichai, a secular Israeli poet. You know that that they could both live in the same prayer book, and in a way, that's true of Torah too. That there are many different, almost contradictory ideas contained in Torah, but they live side by side with each other. Got it. Which, which, which for the listener might be a new and potentially a heretical idea, um, because. We might open up the prayer book and we, we know, even if we don't actually know what, you know, one thing is a biblical quotation, a psalm, another might be a medieval prayer, another might be sort of a, a pious meditation, and somehow it's all anthologized in a prayer book. But you seem to be saying that um, the Torah, uh, the five books of Moses, which in, in pre-modern and traditional communities we, we say that that's one author and that's with a capital A, um, that maybe it ain't so. So, so, so tell me, um, break down for the person who's not familiar with the notion of, of, of source criticism, of biblical criticism, of the documentary hypothesis, um, uh, set, set the terms for our discussion today. So let me start by giving an example. Please. Um, in Exodus, uh, in Parshat Mishpatim, we read as almost the very first law that a Hebrew slave works for seven years and after which you free the Hebrew slave. In Deuteronomy, we read a Hebrew slave works for seven years after which you free him, but you should free him and give him some extra money, give him a gift so that he could start somewhere else, right? He could, he can pick up his life. I mean, uh, so, uh, here we have a case of a law and then a later elaboration of the law. And then in Leviticus, we read, no Hebrew should be a slave. Do not enslave any Israelite. So in one, we have an opening law, and then somewhere else an elaboration of that law, and somewhere else a total negation of that law. Um, now, uh, that's, that repeats itself over and over again with various different kinds of legal material. In Exodus, we read that... Um, Right? Any place that you name me, that is to say, uh, if you put a temple in Bethel, I'll come to Bethel. If you put it in Dan, I'll come to Dan. If you put it, if you put it in Ashkelon, I'll come to Ashkelon. That name me and I'll come there. And then in Deuteronomy we read, Rat. El right? Only the one place where I, I raise my, uh, where my name is raised. So that, um, 
there were various different moments when these these legal portions were put together and uh and they reflected different realities and different different theologies different uh, perspectives um the remarkable thing about torah is that it is all there in one book it's all there not one book there are five books but really really our sense of it is that it is one torah um, and, and so those multiple traditions that were set in place in different cultural historical political contexts ultimately were brought together anthologized in one book or five books that we now refer to as the Torah. The, the image that I use when I teach this rabbi to uh, uh, my students is I talk about my wedding and my wedding album that um, on a certain day uh, years ago in the holy city of Pittsburgh, um, I married my wife. And there was a photographer there. And the photographer took pictures, but then something really interesting happened. In my in-law's house, the pictures are arranged in such a way that begins with my wife, and then my wife and her mother and father, and then my wife and her siblings. And somewhere around page six, it is the picture of me. And so too with my parents, um, when they selected the photograph from the same event, they arranged the pictures with the primary male-female relationship, which is me and my mother, and then me and my brothers, and so on and so forth. And so the same event is recorded with two totally separate albums of documentation of that event. And then if you, and this is actually um, part of what source criticism and the documentary hypothesis is about, that there are multiple traditions, one reflecting the Pittsburgh community, one reflecting the Los Angeles community. And then the trick is that at the end, um, someone brought all those albums together. And so it lays a little unevenly, you know, and that, that in technical terms is the redactor, the person who had that final editorial process. And in the case of the Torah, and I'll bring the, the, the metaphor delightful as it is to an end, um, in the case of the Torah, they're, they're interwoven within the biblical narrative. And so, um, the, the code of law, um, that the children of Israel receive in Exodus is in the context of standing at Mount Sinai. The code of law in Deuteronomy is part of Moses's final oration um, as they are entering into um, the land of Israel at the conclusion of their wilderness wanderings. But what you're suggesting, best as I can tell from reading your book, is that the law code in the book of Exodus and the law code in the book of Leviticus and some of Numbers and the law code in the book of Deuteronomy are actually products of three totally separate moments in time and places and political um, intrigue 
that that have all now you know sit side by side. Is that a a fair summary, Rabbi? Um, exactly, exactly. Um, the the first step is the law code in Exodus, in Mishpatim, the chapters of Mishpatim, in which um, it says about itself uh, at its conclusion, Zesefer Habrit. This is this is the book of the covenant, and so we have a distinct group of laws which which are said to be the book of the covenant. Um, it sets the tone for everything which comes after. Um, uh, it there is a lot of evidence that it was written in northern Israel. Now there was a long yeah, period explain of explain that one to me because. I understand that there are differences, and when we get to Deuteronomy, I understand that you know there's this thing. We'll get to this: the centralization of the cult. But how do you suss out Northern Kingdom versus Southern Kingdom? And we have to define these terms. But you know, how, how do you suss those things? After out? the death of Solomon, the the according to the biblical account, after the death of Solomon, this the, the community of Israel split apart. And there were 10 tribes in the north, and essentially one tribe, although Benjamin also um, joined with Judea in the south. So that the northern kingdom was 10 times the size of, of Judah. Now, the northern kingdom was wiped out in, in, by the Assyrians in uh in the uh, 722 in, in yeah in 722 so that so that uh we have an absolute date if we can date this part of the torah to that we have an absolute date by which it was written uh it was um uh in this chapter of mishpatim it tells us that the year ends and begins again in the fall. And the Northern Kingdom had a calendar in which, uh, like our Tishrei, now began in the fall, because the Northern Kingdom included lots of uh, low-lying lands, agricultural lands, in which the final harvest was in the fall. The Judean Kingdom celebrated the new year in the spring. So if we have a document that says, oh, the new year is in the fall, we can say that came from the northern kingdom. And that's uh, that's a piece of how we date this this from not Judea, but from the northern kingdom. And um, and then Judea writes its own law code when uh, after after the northern kingdom is destroyed and writes Deuteronomy, which is its sense of of what the mosaic teaching is and they're really uh, i mentioned uh, one kind of rewriting there's a really interesting rewriting which occurs for instance in the book of exodus we have the line if you see the um donkey of your enemy falling under its load help raise it up again and reload the donkey, right? 
In the book of Deuteronomy, we have exactly the same words with just one word changed. And the word changes, if the donkey of your neighbor falls. Suddenly, what had been, what had been, uh, even you should help even your enemy becomes uh, your neighbor. So we can trace. What, What does that reflect though on that specific one? So if an initial law says help everyone's donkey that goes astray, and this one says only the donkey that belongs to your buddy, right? So how does that help me understand the provenance of one versus the other? So, um, it, it, uh, first of all, we should note that uh, uh, there is this first and last, right? Uh, something which was written earlier and something which is rewritten. Right. And that's, that's uh, traces such as these are very important ways of our understanding what comes first, what comes second, and, and um, how things got built over one another. Deuteronomy is writing at a time when it is very conscious that northern Israel, the land of northern Israel, has been taken over by Assyria and foreign peoples have been brought in to live there. So the Judeans who are surviving are very worried about the fact that foreigners are going to take over our land. And uh, they're being brought, so our enemy is really taking our land away from us. No, we're not going to help our enemy who are right out there taking away our land. uh, Let's restrict this wonderful ethical law to our neighbor. So, again, it's wonderful to see the historical circumstance under which a law gets changed, under which uh, the pressures of time uh, shape the way we understand the law. And then, and then the, I, I find the, the argument for Deuteronomy to be rather compelling because that is situated on on a famous biblical narrative about a King Josiah, who, um, this is the Haftorah we read on, I think, on the second day of Passover. And it tells a story of the finding of a book and a centralization of all of the ritual and the cult. Um, And as you noted earlier, Rabbi, that you used to be able to offer your sacrifices anywhere you want. You do Passover in your home, wherever it is. And Deuteronomy revolutionizes that and says, nope, there's only one place to do it, and that's there. And lo and behold, that is the same language as used in um, the uh, in the Book of Kings, um, which is the language of King Josiah. So we actually have a hook to hang it on that maybe the Deuteronomic reform happened exactly then and there in the time of King Josiah or in the wake. Um, of it. Uh, and then, you know, and then the, the third uh, category of law is, is the holiness code. And, and I want to spend a little bit of time on that because that, that's a, a code of law that uh, describes, you know, we're, we're familiar with its ethical teachings, right? Around Leviticus chapter 19, you know, uh, you know, I am the Lord, you God, love the, you know, God, because I, the Lord, am your God, 
you know, um, love your neighbor as yourself. Don't put a st stumbling block before the blind. Um, you know, all, all of those ethical exhortations. Um, what, what is that sensibility of that Levitical holiness code signal? What, what cultural context does that signal, Rabbi? So my favorite example of of what of something in the holiness code that second part of Leviticus, which uh, um, is the law of the jubilee, which which mm -hmm. says that every fifty years everyone can go back to their original share in the land. There was never a time in all of biblical history where a prophet or the Book of Kings or uh, references the Jubilee. It's clear that it didn't take place at all during First Temple times. Um, it is also something that can never be done. I mean, it assumes that you know <laughs> the little plot of land that your family got under Joshua, right? And and you can go back to it. But but that's a myth that that people were divided up in such a way that everybody got their exact share. It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful myth that when we originally came into the land, we had an equal society and every 50 years we'll go back to a 50 society, but a, a, a just society. But, but um, it's a dream. And it's a dream that's dreamed in exile. You can think of the land as being a tabula rasa, as we can go back and everybody will get their share if you're out of the land and you're dreaming about the land. But it is, it is not, if you're living on the land, you see right away that, that, um, this is, this is not something that ever was or can be. Um, it's a beautiful, wonderful ideal that's dreamed in exile. Of, of how we should live with one another, how we should be with one another. Um, the central part of um, chapter 19, which says, uh, love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, famously, Abraham Joshua Heschel said, this is the one commandment which is impossible to observe. <laughs> you, it, so the holiness code, if you will, is an ideal, is something to strive for. It's something, it's a dream, uh, a dream of social equality, a dream of... But it's a dream of, a dream of a people in exile. Yes. So both later, but also landless, perhaps, and... Uh, without their their central forms of ritual that they might have had in these earlier codes in the book of Exodus and in the book of Deuteronomy. Which is why in the Holiness Code, Shabbat becomes centrally important. Interesting. Because in exile, Shabbat takes on a new meaning that it never had when we were in the land. But what about all the Leviticus bits and pieces about ritual and slaughter and sacrifice and the garments of the priests and all, is that different? Is, is that sort of a different document than the, what we're talking about, the ethical teachings? I think the priests who wrote the Holiness Code were priests. That is, they, they were not out to dismantle the temple or have a different system than the sacrificial system. In fact, um, uh, it, 
it, I think it was centrally important for them that, that we have some central means by which we can um, have a sense of, of how do we reach the divine. The innovation of the holiness code is that it doesn't only take place in the temple, but it I takes see, so place were, among the people. So they were both memorializing, as it were, the priestly cult and innovating in the sense of saying holiness is not only found in the cult, but also found in the Sabbath and ethical behavior in, you know, uh, these, uh, in, in these other uh, forms of spiritual expression. And it also expresses the, the tremendous disappointment they had in kingship. That is to say, there is no mention of a king. There's no mention of a special role that a king plays in in any of these rituals. There, uh, the, the, in fact, in the whole Torah, there there are only two times that we find God as referred to as Melech, as king, and both of those are in poetry. In which case, they it couldn't have been taken out because you'd have to take out the poem. Uh, um, uh, and uh, but I think there is specifically a sense of the center of Jewish life, a center of Israelite life, like uh, is uh, worship, is temple, is uh, ethics, is behavior, is Shabbat, but is not kingship. Hmm. So I think we have time for one last question, and I want to ask you a, a personal one, or uh, um, not about the book itself, but about the implications of the book. Um, I don't know if people call you Edward or Ed. I call you rabbi. And as a rabbi, you are a teacher, and not just any kind of teacher, but of faith. And uh, you actually spend a lot of your time mentoring uh, rabbinical students and future leaders. I'm just wondering, how do you um, square the circle of this idea of, of the Bible being the product of different stages and ages and otherwise authorship um, uh, with, with, with the traditional Jewish view of the Torah. You know, when we raise the Torah on a Shabbat morning, we say, Bezot HaTorah, Sher Moshe. This is the Torah that God gave Moses before the children of Israel. So how, how, do, how do you balance these things, Rabbi? I think that um, we should understand Judaism as an attempt to engage in an ongoing relationship with the divine, with God, that um, it is not captured in any single moment. We are, we live with the words of Torah. We try, those are the words which birthed us. But um, we are a people who understand that all revelation is interpretation. That, um, that you can't separate out the human element from the divine message. That the, our 
what we have is the attempt to reach the divine rather than the divine God self. So every generation, including the generations within the Bible itself, are just a record of human beings trying to uh, give expression to the will of the divine. What I got out of this um, adventure of writing this book was that each of these moments, each of these levels, were heavily, heavily influenced by prophetic teaching. Um, and um, they are an attempt to find a way of life which can accord with prophetic teaching. Um, and um, that's what we try to do. We try to understand what, what it is that um, we can think of as being uh, the wish, the will of the divine, um, and to try to implement it. Um, what is remarkable about all three codes and throughout the Torah is the way in which the worship of the divine and the ethical demands are, are so entangled with each other and so uh, much a part of each other. Uh, um, and that's what impressed me in this work. Well, your book impressed me greatly. Uh, the Book of Revolutions, The Battles of Priests, Prophets, and Kings that Birth the Torah, a fabulous and fascinating and freewheeling discussion with Rabbi Edward Feld, whom I congratulate on this new publication. Really just outstanding. Thank you so much for joining us, Rabbi Feld, and thank you so much for being here on Park Avenue Synagogue Podcast. Thank you for everything. Thank you for listening to the Park Avenue Synagogue Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more about our community, check out PASYN.org. See you in shul. Hallelujah, Hallelujah.